Okay. Well, we're starting out this week in 1 Samuel um, 17. And as we move along, we kind of covered last week um, a good deal about Saul and his um, sort of Saul's high point as king over Israel and the beginning, really, of the decline of Saul, um, marked by um, incomplete obedience and... um, a rather insincere repentance um, with Samuel the prophet. And we saw that God took the kingdom and his favor away from Saul. Now Saul is still running around um, functioning as king over Israel, but clearly God has taken his favor from Saul. And um, I was having a conversation with someone last week and, you know, talking about like what Saul maybe should have done in that context. Um, And I just... I think that God would have honored, if, if when God told him, I'm taking the kingdom from you, you've lost my favor, if Saul had thrown his crown in the dirt, sackcloth and ashes, God has taken this from me, I have sinned, I am not worthy, he might have lost the honor and the power you know, that he got from the people around him, but I think God would have, that, that sort of brokenness and contriteness, that, that God tends to view these things in a very positive way because God looks at the heart. But but Saul's was the complete opposite response. And, and remember, we talked about that Samuel himself, who anointed Saul, was terrified to travel for the purpose of anointing the new king. He said, if Saul finds out I'm doing this, he will kill me. So far from being willing to give up the, you know, the, the, the kingdom that God has taken from him, Saul is now fighting, fighting, fighting to keep his... his, his um, his perch. He's trying to keep his position, and we'll see. Um, and, and in response to that, we see the anointing. We saw the anointing of a new king, of David, and um, David, who was not as physically imposing as Saul, but in God's estimation, this is the new king. In God's estimation, this was this was a man fit to be king. So that's where we that's where we start start our new uh, section here. And um, 1 Samuel 17 is David and Goliath. I won't belabor all the details of that story. You've all heard it. Everyone who's been to Sunday school has heard it. Um, The Philistines, once again, come together. They congregate for battle against the Israelites and the two armies encamp facing each other. I I did, however, um, throw in a little just um, excursus here. in case you guys are interested, I thought you might find this as fascinating since the details, the basic details of the story are pretty well known, um, is that giants are actually referenced many times throughout the Old Testament, both before and after the flood. Um, we hear them referred to by different names, the Nephilim, the Raphaim, the sons of Anak. They seem to have come... Um, in family groups in certain instances, and I put all these references in there for you. Um, different, different groups, it wasn't all one group. Um, sort of fascinating that these details are just recorded for us. If you remember um, when the spies made the report after going into the land, they said we're like grasshoppers compared to them, you know, they're big people. And there's been a lot of uh, speculation about that. Um, also, there's an interesting mention <clears throat> of a giant 
with uh, six fingers and six toes on each hand. That's um, it's a medical condition today that they would diagnose as polydactyly. No, 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 no. True, truly. But an interesting segue there, the Princess Bride, if any of you have ever seen it, the giant is played by Andre the Giant, a wrestler who had a pituitary gland problem which caused him to grow to such immense size to continue growing all of his life long after he should have stopped and ultimately did kill him. This has been speculated I'm, I'm speculating here um, to be a possible cause where there seem to have been families of giants, okay? Groups of people that were larger. And just if any of you are just, just want some reading, I, I put in um, an article from the Ulster Journal, Journal of Medicine in 2014 whereby there was some speculation about the condition of six fingers, also the condition about being extra large and some ways that that could have potentially been transmitted via genetics through families. I put all that in there. It's available online if you want to read it. I just thought you guys would think that's fascinating. The Bible actually has a lot to say about giants, and that's the bulk of the first page here, is if you guys want to do more reading about that through the Bible, um, I listed those out for you. But anyway, giants were not... Giants are mentioned a lot in the Bible. Well... That um, a couple things, we're given measurements in a lot of cases, height, which is usually measured in a cubit, but a cubit being a, you know, the measurement from here to here, it's a rudimentary form of measurement. Also, um, in one of these um, that I uh, listed in here, it talks about the size, it was an iron bed that the giant slept in and how large the bed was. Um, so... The, the problem is, is that it, the size of a cubit could depend slightly on the size of the person, right? It's not, it's not like um, the metric system, the imperial system, so, but large. I mean, I've heard people say Goliath was 10 feet tall. I, you know, if, the, if they get the cubits right, that would be very large, obviously. And they have, again, I didn't want to dig into all this too deeply, but there are archaeological evidence that some people, some archaeologists have pointed to just supersized artifacts, you know, that could have been for extra large people. I mean, certainly we have large people today that are born. Um, we do know of some medical conditions that I mentioned earlier that can lead to that. Um, so, so it is possible, but it's not known. Again, I, I am I'm just taking a brief moment. I thought you guys would think this was kind of fun to just... And, and there are stories that persist even to today um, in more primitive parts of the world about occasional, you know, extra large people that occur. And it's kind of fascinating just from a speculative standpoint. But, uh, but there's no speculation about Goliath. Goliath was a real man, a Philistine champion um, who presented himself before Israel, as you know, the Israelite army, and everyone was afraid to fight him. Certainly... Saul, the king, was not willing to go out and fight him. Saul also, if we remember, having the, the distinguishing characteristic of being rather large, but not a giant. And uh, so it turns out, as you know, that it is David, the shepherd boy, musician, and anointed king who kills Goliath. And this is a real um, a big moment for David publicly. This, this elevates him publicly. He's been anointed. Remember, he's been anointed in private, secret, in fact, 
And then, through God's providence, he actually becomes Saul's armor bearer, right? Remember that? Because of the the playing of the lyre, we talked about that. So it's weird how God took the anointed king and brought him right into Saul's inner circle. And, but this, this is the moment when David really publicly, um, it, be, it becomes a, uh, an important moment for him. And uh, he also forms a close uh, bond with Saul's son, Jonathan, which will be important in our story later. Following his victory over Goliath, Saul sends David out on several military missions and David is so successful that Saul eventually sets David over all the Israelite men of war but there's a problem when the people's praise for David surpasses his own Saul becomes angry and suspicious remember earlier when Jonathan fought the Philistines Saul took the credit for it Saul is not going to share credit. It wasn't that they didn't say nice things about Saul. They just said nicer things about David to a king who knows his powers on very shaky footing and to a king who has shown in the past that he is jealous and unable to share glory. He, this is simply unacceptable. So Saul becomes angry and suspicious. And the next day, um, a harmful spirit from God is sent and torments Saul And Saul raves, and he tries to kill David with a spear twice. So we can see see the slide. We can see the um, Saul beginning to sort of come unravel here. And then Saul makes David a commander over a thousand men. You can see the... um, the instability, you can see like the ups and the downs, you can see this sort of capricious king who is, 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 is so unstable, he's sort of coming apart because one minute he's try, trying to kill him and the next minute he's like, well, be commander over these men. But God is with David. Remember that God's spirit had descended upon David about the time it left Saul. And David is successful in all that he does. Um... Saul is now even more fearful of David. And again, in a, what might seem a strange reversal, Saul offers one of his daughters to David as a wife. But Scripture records for us the motivation there was he was hoping to get David to fight the Philistines, hoping David would be killed. So now Saul, who, who has, has alternated between trying to kill David and promoting David is now looking for a more duplicitous sort of way to get rid of him. And he's like, well, I'll offer my daughter and, you know, cause maybe go out and fight with the Philistines and that'll end this. And then I'll be free of this David who I'm getting really concerned about because he's doing so well with everything and he's a public figure now. Um, But at the last moment, Saul instead gives his daughter to another man. That would make most of us very upset. But... David continues to faithfully serve. Now Saul's, another daughter of Saul, professes her love for David. And this, in a more sort of, again hoping to make David stumble, Saul offers his daughter. But there's a problem. David doesn't have anything. He's poor. Remember his family? He's a shepherd boy. He doesn't come from a a palace. He's a, you know, he says, I don't have anything. But... Saul, very generously, said, in lieu of the traditional bride price, I will instead accept 100 
Philistine foreskins. I mean, looking back on it, it's not hard to see what this is. Saul's like, well, in order to get this, he has to kill a hundred Philistines. The Philistines are dangerous people. This is a good way to get rid of this, what's becoming a rival for me. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yes. No, it, it does not appear that David was able to obtain them surgically, so uh, <clears throat> the only way to get them was the old-fashioned way, was to kill them. Um, but again, God is with David. It kind of reminds you a little bit about Joseph, right? Joseph is put in all these terrible situations. Remember, way back, in, you know, taken away, sold into slavery, sent to Egypt. People did terrible things with him, but God's hand was on him, and whatever he did went well. That's kind of the picture of David right now. And David, who was either trying to make a point or was, prob- or was a natural overachiever, actually brings him 200 foreskins, sort of showing, showing Saul that this was no problem for me. My men and I were able to accomplish this. <clears throat> um, it's actually recorded. It says, No other servant of Saul fared so well against the Philistines. And Saul becomes even more afraid of David. And it says in... Uh, 1 Samuel 18, that Saul was David's enemy continually from this point onward. And I, I think soon we'll be done with Saul in our story, but before we completely get past this first king of Israel, how did Saul's downward spiral begin? I'd like to hear what you guys think. I, I, we've been kind of go, we've been talking about Saul a lot in the last week or two. What was the genesis of his spiral? Because we're going to see Saul end up in some truly horrible places already, right? I mean, he, I mean, the man's becoming violent. He's manipulative. You know, the prophet who anointed him, the prophet of God, was afraid of him. How did how, this is where we're going? Where did it start? Greg. Saul's pride. Um, he was unwilling to uh, recognize that he had to do the spectacular things to get the, the benefit of, the, of being able to say, look what I've done. He was unwilling to do that. Instead, sent his son or sent David. And then when he couldn't take credit for it, he was... He was jealous, even though he set the whole thing in motion. That's an excellent answer. I think the pride, like, I think everything we learn about Saul leads us to believe he's very prideful. Yes. Hi, I agree with um, Greg's what he said, but I also would think that it would start earlier when he got so prideful that he started to disobey what Samuel and Saul and God said uh, earlier even than that. When he started to put him, his own pride up, I don't have to wait for him. I'll just make the sacrifice myself. Right. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that was kind of a connection to last week, that sort of I don't have to wait for Samuel or... Or the partial obedience we talked about. Like, he did most of what God asked him to do. We, we look at that and, and we think, by comparison, Saul's first sins weren't really, in our eyes perhaps, as egregious as trying to get someone killed or, or 
But his sin has grown, okay? And that's something, like, it's important, like I said, really quickly, I just want to touch on that, is that we, we see here with Saul as clearly as anyone else in Scripture what sin that, that is unrepented sin in your life in the king's life over a period of time, what happens? When that sin matures, when that sin grows to maturity, it starts pride, selfishness, um, but it's just fascinating to see the, um, that it gets worse, it gets more overt, he becomes more bold in his sin, I mean, trying to kill someone with a spear, that's pretty bold. That's, that's, not a, that's a long way from just like, oh, well, I didn't do quite everything I was asked to do. It's like, no, you're threatening my rule, which God has told me is now illegitimate, and I'm going to kill you. It's, it, we've, slid, we've slid a long way. And I think for New Testament Christians, the picture when I was reading this that I was really convicted of is that just like, think about like a sin in my life, you know, or a sin in the lives of another believer, and you're just like, well, it doesn't really seem like it's, I mean, it's not good, but I mean, it's not like a huge sin, you know? I mean, I should deal with it, but I'm not, you know, it's, it's hard, and it seems really like nitpicky and exact, and, and it goes on, and it goes on, it gets a little worse, and you get a little worse, and, and, and then who knows how long it takes that sin to mature, but like, and then down the road when like, a relationship or, 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 or a church or something, when your mature sin tears that apart, you're just like, well, how did this happen? You know, and you're like, you know, it felt like it started with something so small. And I'm sure there might have been times when Saul, in his more lucid moments, maybe he thought, well, how did I get here, you know? And the answer was it started with smaller things. He didn't deal with his sin properly. He didn't, you know, work to keep it out of, he didn't work to keep it away. He didn't um, ask God for help with it, um, and he was consumed by his sin. He really was, and and I just I don't want to stay on it too much longer. But I just I was so convicted of that. I was like, I've got to share that because it just it's the picture of like what would happen if the you know the sin that you just kind of let hang around and dally with it for a while and let it hang around and it gets a little bigger and a little worse and a little bigger and a little worse and at some point it just it consumes you. And you think, oh, how did this happen? I think it's a warning for us. Um, Because if it can happen to a king, it can happen to you and I. So I just want to draw that parallel there. Because Saul's already in a dark place and headed for a worse place. Jonathan, moving on. We're now in uh, 1 Samuel 19. Jonathan speaks to his father Saul and argues against harming David. Remember, Jonathan and David had become very close and made a covenant, covenant between themselves. Jonathan reminds Saul of David's mighty deeds. I mean, remember, it said nobody had been as successful against the Philistines as David had been. And David is, and David is not elevating himself. David is fighting under the direction of the king, and nobody knew better than David who was going to be the next king and who was the actual anointed king. And yet David doesn't rise up against Saul. Far from it. He's serving Saul faithfully. In response, Saul makes a vow not to harm David. And Jonathan tells David, and David's like, okay. And David returns to the service of the king like um, in person. Um, The harmful spirit of the Lord torments Saul. And 
Saul again tries to kill David with a spear. He's already done this twice. David escapes, as he did before, but it gets worse. The king sends men to David's house to kill him or to bring him to have him killed. And David escapes out the window with the help of his wife, Saul's daughter. Um, and now we see sort of a, um, an, interesting, an interesting moment in the story. Um, David, that we're in 1 Samuel 18, 19, verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naoth. Interesting, right? Samuel, remember he gave his like goodbye speech, but Samuel just keeps coming up, right? Samuel was already old, but he can't get out of this story. The Israel, God just can't spare him in this. Um, it's very interesting that, that, um, that <laughs> David, because remember, Samuel anointed Saul. Samuel anointed David. Now David's running from Saul, and he runs and he goes to Samuel. So, you know, imagine, you know, the things they, you know, just, just them being together, it, I'm sure it was a, I'm sure it was an interesting moment to see those two come together again, um, but Saul certainly hasn't forgotten. Picking it up in verse 20, then Saul sent messengers to take David, and they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, so there was a group of prophets. The Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. They're unable to harm David. Continuing on, when it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers for a third time, and they also prophesied. So these men that are sent to get David go there and end up prophesying with the prophets under Samuel. Then, verse 22, Saul, he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied, this is Saul, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes and there prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Kings don't like to be humiliated. Leaders guard their position jealously. This is a moment of supreme humiliation for Saul, who has had the kingdom taken from him but refuses to give it up. He sends men multiple times to get David. And when that doesn't work, he goes himself. And remember, David is with Samuel. And when he goes, Saul ends up naked on the ground prophesying and I think that is a fitting place to leave Saul until next week. That's where we're going to leave him. Yes, Greg. Upon further reflection of uh, why Saul ended up in such a bad place, I think this whole episode uh, goes back to the, the people demanding a king. Uh, and then the poor choices they used to select that king uh, you know, what were his characteristics? Well, he was tall and good-looking. He wasn't a, a leader. 
I mean, he hid among the baggage. He didn't want to be a leader. He, was a, he wasn't a great warrior. He couldn't throw a spear, apparently. Uh, <laughs> That's true. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> you know, so they, they, they wrongfully selected a king, and they wrongfully they used the wrong attributes to find the king and, and put him in place. And then those attributes came to the forefront, his weaknesses, and, uh, you know, it's basically God saying, you know, you, you wanted a king. Okay, I gave you one. Uh, you did this all poorly. You get yes. what you deserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had years of, of, uh, mm-hmm. of having a deranged king. Yep. I mean, we see some of the things he did, but I suspect mm-hmm. if he was this deranged, he probably did other things that were incomprehensible. Why would you, you know... Yep. Who knows what what other things he did to the people during this time? And it's God's God's way of showing them. Okay, you you know you know more than I do. You know you think you know more than than me. Okay, let's just see how that goes. I agree. And again, the the public picture of your king in such a condition is in a bit of an indictment against the people. They're like, here's your king. That guy right over there, face down on the ground with no clothes on, that's your king. That's, that is a, a, a judgment against them and, and, and perhaps what they thought would be the best king. Um, even, and God even tells Samuel back in 16, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So I agree. I think it's, it's showing the people like this is the guy, you know, this was your guy. Look at him now. And, um, and like I said, that is where we'll, I'm, I'm, I know we ran a little long last week. So um, we'll, we'll make this part one of David and we'll pick up more of David next week. David is so long, I had trouble getting it all into one lesson anyway. It was going to be very, very long. So um that's where we'll pick it up. Before we, before we finish, does anyone have any thoughts or questions about, um, you know, David's ascension, the giants, the progression and maturity of Saul's sin and his downfall? Because Saul, like you said, Saul's going to get to some really bad places. We're going to see Saul, like, killing priests and some other stuff. I mean, it gets worse. So we see this, this maturing of this sin and just, he's just totally coming apart. Yes, Simeon. Uh, just one thing that didn't get mentioned was that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, mm-hmm. and God said the royalty would be through the tribe of Judah, and I think that was the main first thing that Israel did was forget God's commandment. I think that's a good point, um, because as we've mentioned, it wasn't that they didn't have instructions about their king or for their king. It was just that a lot of those didn't get followed, got ignored, and we'll see, too, a lot of the things that kings aren't supposed to do, we find out the kings are doing, which Samuel warned them would happen, but the people were very stuck on, we want a king right now, we want it the way we want it. Yes, Al? It just there's, there's so many interesting things here, but one thing you mentioned was, you know, initially, Saul, he, I mean, he was hiding in the baggage. He, he didn't you know, he didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't even understand what was going on, really. But, but you know, God chose him and put him up. And, and then there's a spot in there, and I didn't look up the verse, but where it says that God changed his heart. 
and he mm-hmm. became mm-hmm. he became a king basically mm-hmm. at that point. He he God was with him, mm-hmm. um, but then later on, after all these things, it also then says again, and the spirit of God departed from him. Mm-hmm. So, and he didn't really get that either. I mean, it's like he didn't get that now the spirit of God is gone. Right. So, um, just some just some very interesting things. And he was talking about Benjamin. You know, the Benjamites were, um, you know, that was part of the same group that uh, was was basically, if I'm rem- remembering it correctly, was was almost cursed because of what had happened with this um, concubine. I think that was a Benjamite. Mm-hmm. Um, could be wrong. Um, but anyway, there was a thread there of the Benjamites. And uh, they weren't, at least for a while, they were highly thought of. But anyway, it just, it's just so many interesting things as you study through that and how everything relates and um anyway it is yeah i I agree and it's just a lot of threads and a lot of narratives a lot we can learn from it thank goodness um and certainly like i said that i mentioned some of the stuff that i found most convicting from just reading through it this week and and uh i'm motivated anew to go out and try and find little tiny sins in my life and pray to god and deal with them and try and get them out of the way because I don't want my sins to mature, you know what I mean, and do what they did to Saul because he wouldn't deal with them. So that was really motivating for me. Wanda? Well, this is kind of a difficult question probably to answer, but throughout the whole Bible, I always get caught up when it says the Lord sent a tormenting spirit. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder if you expound on that a little bit because Mm -hmm. it kind of reads at first glance that... Mm-hmm. the Lord sent that spirit mm-hmm. to entice Saul mm-hmm. to go after David. Yes. So I just wonder, if, am I thinking that right? And can here's, you kind of... Here's, here's what I would say about that. Well, for in James, for instance, that we're just, we're just getting to, it talks about that God does not tempt anyone, that there's enough sin in the heart of every single person, you know, to draw out... A desire for for all all sorts of evil things, um, but certainly we have narrative. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, we remember that. And here we say that God sent a a, a spirit to torment Saul. Um, now that might have that might have made Saul miserable and more quickly brought the sin in his heart to the surface. Okay. But I think we have to take James in his word when it says God does not tempt in the way that um, that we use that phrase, you know, God does not tempt someone like he's dangling sin out in front of them, you know, trying to make that happen. It's more like there's that much evil in the heart of every person, and, you know, if God helps take those breaks off, your own sin will consume you, and we do see that happening. And I think that's, I think that's a picture that... Um, allows for the fact that God is playing a role because we don't we don't want to like we can't just like sweep this away God is playing a role here okay he's torment he sent a spirit to torment Saul but what we want to be careful of is making Saul a victim and then we absolve Saul of well it's not his fault he had a spirit that was you know an evil spirit that was bothering him um no very clearly Saul is in sin and um and the, like I said the more accurate picture might be that the sin is already there you know and God is Instead of offering guidance, you know, God is tormenting him and making him miserable, and Saul's sin is rising to the surface more quickly. And I think that's faithful to both what James tells us and to what we read here. 
Similarly, it reminds me of Pharaoh, yeah. um, hardening his heart. But again, like I said, we don't want to, we want to guard against like, well, it's not Saul's fault. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Saul was in sin. He's being punished for his sin. He's unrepentant. Mm-hmm. Um, and his sin is consuming him more each day. How's that? Good. Anyone else have any thoughts on that? That's a good, tough question. Does anyone else want to? Al. I was just uh, listening to R.C. Sproul the other day in regards to this. Um, you know, God, is he the author of evil or does he send evil upon people? And you might look that up, but very, uh, very interesting. But um, you're exactly right. I mean, our, our sin is already there. Um, it's not like God is saying, all right, um, you know what? I'm going to cause you to do evil. Um, you know, I'm the cause of the evil. No, the evil's already there. And um, obviously, R.C. does a great job of explaining it. But uh, in the end, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. It's a, it's a difficult saying, and it's hard to wrap your mind around it. It's not going to make light of it. Um, it is not easy to comprehend that, and I'm not sure we, we totally do. Um, so, yep. That's true. That's true. And obviously a special circumstance, but... Yeah. This was more just a com- um, comment that mm-hmm. as, as you were responding to her question, mm-hmm. I, it, it's hard, it is hard to wrap our head around the fact that it seems like God's almost in coots with Satan to send a, mm-hmm. one of his evil spirits or allow one of his evil spirits mm-hmm. to, to go tempt him. And that's hard to understand that... Uh, you know, and evil can't be in the presence of God. We've seen that before, mm-hmm. and that that whole idea is very hard to grasp. It is. It is difficult. I'll grant you that. I think, um, like I said, it bears serious consideration, um, and I think that you can, at very, I think you can rest assured that God is not in cahoots with Satan. They are at <laughs> odds in every way, at every possible moment, at all times, um, but. Certainly, um, I think I think the the hard thing is that, you know, the evil the evil here is coming from Saul, and um, it, it is it's difficult. But like I said, we know that Saul is guilty. We know that after he sinned and didn't repent from it, that God has actively removed his support from him and has now sent a spirit to torment him. But Whatever else it can mean, it, like I said, it cannot mean that God is tempting him in the sense that he's dangling sin out in front of him and like, no, we know that from Scripture God doesn't do that. But it, it's tough, and, um, you know, it makes our prayers all the more earnest when we're just like, help, help us overcome temptation and because we know that God gives that power to overcome, and that's what we hope and pray for. So, But yeah, special situation, and Saul, we're leaving him in a very undignified place and I'm doing that on purpose because from here on out there's very little in everything about Saul from here on out is pretty horrific so that's where we'll pick it up next week and we will see David's ascension to the kingship most I think without question the greatest king over Israel and um, with the three big kings here and then we are to the divided kingdom and then we are believe it or not getting pretty close to the end of our story so any other thoughts before we finish? I said I'd let you out a few minutes early. I will to make up for last week. Anyone? Thoughts? Yes, Stacy. I have a question for you. Uh-oh. I'll see if I can answer it. It's an incomplete thought, but 
Had you spent any time thinking about any uh, comparison between Saul's uh, indication of unwillingness, at, at least at first, to be the one chosen by Lot, mm-hmm. and Moses's mm-hmm. trepidation in you know, his his response of, you know, yeah. I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Have you spent any time thinking about that? You know, that? Stacey, that's a really that's a really interesting comparison. It, I had not it had not occurred to me. Um, it's true that they both were were pretty you know were very reticent to to take that to take that leadership role. Like Moses had a list of reasons for God why it shouldn't happen, and God answered every single one of them. And um, that's that's fascinating. And I think um, Moses, who moved forward with God and in faith and in obedience to God, obviously ended up in a very different place, but no, I hadn't considered that. But um, I guess from bo- both of them having sort of inauspicious beginnings, but the difference was whether God was with them or not, where, you know, God was with Moses. No, no, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought of that. Just, uh, and Saul, you know, he was, he was a little nervous to take the throne, but once he got a hold of it, he would kill to keep it. You know what I mean? He, it turns out he kind of liked it and he was not willing to part with that crown. So, um, yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought of that. Oh, yes. Well, I just was wondering, um, as I'm listening and thinking, I wish I had Simeon's three words that Pastor talked about this morning because I don't have them right off the top of my head. But think, do, feel. Think, do, feel. All right, well... (laughs) <laughs> Moses thought, did, and then put his own feelings last. Mm-hmm. Saul got it out of order. Hmm. That's true. Excellent. Yeah, I like that. Because Saul was very concerned. Uh, it, at the end, it turned out that what Saul felt was right was more important to him than what God told him to do initially. Because remember, you know, he kept the best of the livestock, you know, and he kept the king as a trophy of war, and that felt right to him, which clearly was more important than what he'd been commanded to do. Very good. I like that. Nice connection to today's sermon. So, anything else, guys? Thank you. Thank you very much. Please be safe out there. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>